The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture is from Micah 5, 1-6. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With the rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Epirath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come for me, one who is the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is of old from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of the brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. He shall be their peace when the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces. We will raise against them seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Savannah. Well, um, welcome again, especially if you're new with us this morning or you're here for the baptisms. Um, and uh, if you've been here before uh, and are visiting, we're so glad you're with us this morning. Um, I was saying my um, in-laws are actually in town, which is great. And uh, one of the things when my parents have come in town, uh, we've done some things where we've been able to take them if you're new to Nashville and uh, have done any of the plenty, a myriad of things they have going on in the city. One of the things we've actually done before is, is gone to uh, Cheekwood, which is a bot- botanical garden. Uh, one of the places where they've taken like this beautiful uh, land and mansion and turned it into a, a museum and garden and that kind of thing. Took my parents there years ago to a, a, an exhibit that I thought would be interesting. And it was, it was called, uh, uh, Who is God? And it was this art exhibit that these people, you know, all throughout, I guess, Nashville had taken certain opportunities to kind of exhibit in artwork, art form, what they thought God was or who. And uh, everything from, you know, you walk into the halls and you see like a medicine cabinet, you know, stuck on the wall, opened up with some bandages and things. Okay, well, that's what they think God is. Uh, To some other things like a a wooden board with like plastic fish nailed to it, you know, all sorts of artistic design like that, some of which were uh, kind of odd and creepy at moments, Uh, like a TV with all sorts of like people just falling over. Uh, I was like, okay, I don't get that one, but maybe it's just me. Um, so, but the interesting thing about it is that, that really is kind of the question when we come into a room and maybe you're unfamiliar um, with church or maybe you are, and even if you come this morning and you say, well, maybe I've, I've been in church for a long time, we still are constantly asking that question. And we're still in this pattern often of this cost-benefit analysis of, okay, what do I compare God to? And is he worth it enough? Does he work? Maybe God is in your life. Maybe you'd say, yeah, he's a part of my life. But when it comes to that cost-benefit analysis, it's like, does he improve it? Where does he help? Where do we utilize him? Where do we not? And we can be somewhat like Ricky Bobby at the table saying, well, you know, I like the eight-pound, six-ounce baby Jesus the best, and we pray to him. 
You know, that becomes like kind of our thing. So the thing, though, when we read this in Micah, that's interesting, is that the people of Israel are dealing with that very thing. Uh, we started a, a series in a book called Micah, which is an Old Testament book. It's called a minor prophet, which is not minor because of significance, but because of size. And Micah was preaching to a group of people with, um, and you heard it a little bit, war looming. A little bit almost like Ukraine, waiting for those moments when Russia was going to invade. Knowing it was coming, and it's looming on the borders, and they're looking down the corridor of what's going to happen to them, and they are wondering, is God really worth it? In fact, Micah's name means, who is like God? It's a question. A rhetorical one of, who is like God? And this is Micah's purpose. Who is like him? But we often can come back and say, well, I have a lot of things in my life that can be like him. I can get my life in order enough here, so he doesn't need to really worry about this. I can kind of deal with this issue or this problem. Maybe when we do confession, when we are in a church or something like that, maybe we just go back to the same thing over and over in our minds because we got the rest of it. If I put my shoulder down and go hard enough, I, I, I can take care of it. But what this passage is really getting at is who is like God? It, it, Micah chapter 5 is saying there is a king that is going to come and set things right, but he is not like the other kings you think. He is powerful, but he is vulnerable. He's new, but he's old. He's, he's, he's strong, but he's peaceful. He has this kind of juxtaposition all through, and that's what we're going to look at as we look at this chapter is who is like God? How do we really get to the root of our own hearts and say, is there really a God like him? And what are the things that we put ourselves next to or brush up against or take into our, our world that we think is enough like God and can handle our lives? How is he set apart? So we're going to look at this passage in, in three ways. We're going to look at the God of the past, uh, the God of power, and the God of peace. So the God of past, power, and peace in this passage. And at this moment, as you even read, if you heard the, the beginning verse, it says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. The very first verse says they are looking at this superpower called Assyria, which we'll talk about more in a minute. But this superpower that they are well-trained, very aggressive, and very militarily strong in the sake of their they're wanting to take over everything. And Israel sees them. And, and here's this line of muster your troops. Get your troops in order. But then verse 2 says this. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Now, if you've heard the word Bethlehem, that may strike to you a, a tone of, okay, I think I've heard that word before. You may have heard it at Christmas time when Bethlehem is brought up, that word. And we, we hear that where Jesus connected that, his birth. It's part of those Christmas stories. But Bethlehem is an interesting thing. If you were listening to this, and this is the, the important thing, of what would the hearers, the original hearers of Micah think of this? When they heard Bethlehem, they were like, are you kidding? When it says, who are too little to be among the clans, that's actually a nice way to put Bethlehem. Bethlehem was insignificant. 
It was a no-name place with insignificant, no-name people. And for them to gather the troops and then it go, but you, O Bethlehem, from you shall come this, this military person. <laughs> from you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. They were like, that is the worst idea we've ever heard. Why would we do that? You want somebody that has, that has clout, somebody that has wisdom, somebody who's been in one of the larger cities, larger towns, that's actually seen military progress, who can help us out. But then comes that juxtaposition of Bethlehem, this small, no-name place that has not carried much history or weight, nor it's one of those places you wouldn't really want to go to and you wouldn't really gonna, kind of want anybody to come from to this, one who is to be a ruler in Israel who's coming forth is from old, from ancient days. That would have struck a note to their ears to say, ancient days. We know who that is, and that's who we want. That's David. But then the Hebrew goes further. It says not only ancient days, but one from old is a word that means eternity. One that goes on and on. One that stretches past time and length. I went to the Auburn-Vandy game last night. Very fun game for at least some of us. But it is interesting to me in sports, I know you know this, we do this in our house, where you know, we say, hey, are you coming? It's co- yeah, I'll be there in five minutes. And we're like, is that football minutes or real minutes? Because you know how that works. Like football minutes five is like a 30 stretched out. Well, you know, last night we're watching the game. It's, it gets down. It's tied. Game's going. How is it that we have games with a set amount of time that can just stretch for hours? Like literally 30 seconds at the end of a basketball game could probably take 15 to 20 minutes. Timeout, timeout, timeout. Just foul, 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 foul. I mean, it's like how long can we stretch it out? And you just kind of think about, like, if you step back and think on that, it's this time that's allotted, but it's stretched over length. There was an um, article written by somebody in the New, York, uh, the New Yorker that was really interesting. It was called The Secret Life of Time. I thought this was really interesting. He said this, Some nights more than I like lately, I wake to the sound of the bedside clock. The room is dark without detail, and it expands in such a way that it seems as if I'm outdoors, under an empty sky or underground in a cavern. I might be falling through space. I might be dreaming. I could be dead. Only the clock moves. It's tick, steady, unhurried. At these moments, I have the most chilling understanding that time moves in only one direction. And I'm most aware of being at the service of something, that there is a machine in me or I'm a ghost in it. This is what it feels like. And this is why we have FOMO. Because we don't want to miss anything because we know time continues to move forward. It's hard for our minds to wrap around eternity. But when we grasp time and the things that we miss and how it goes by so quickly, it calls us to say we long for it. This person who wrote this article even goes on at the end of his article to quote uh, a very well-known theologian named St. Augustine whom I love. And he says, time may be slippery and maddeningly abstract, but it's deeply intimate, infusing every, uh, our every word and gesture. Its essence, Augustine argued, can be gleaned from a single line of speech. Deus cre- creator ominum, 
God, creator of all things. That time forces us to see our own limits, but it forces us also to long for the limit, limitlessness, to live in unhurried space and time, to not wake up, as I think everyone in this room probably has at some point, to sit in the dark and let your mind run when you know the clock is ticking and you cannot sleep because you know that you're sitting in a space and time which you wish could be solved. This is what this passage is moving at. They know there's trouble on the border. They know that they're about to be destroyed. And they're working as hard as they can to muster troops, but everything is slowly ticking. And when they hear this, who's coming forth from old, it's striking in them, yes, we want this. We want that ruler. We want that king who's going to come that we know from the past, David. But they know in this time and in this passage, David died years ago. How could David, this one who was a great warrior who subdued and brought peace, bring any peace whatsoever? This passage is striking at their longing for some king to come, someone to come who was trained like David, who would take on their enemies. And no, every one of these points we're talking about is not some ethereal thing. They're not hoping for some past person that's going to bring in some nicety. This is very tangible, very practical to every moment of their life. And they need someone to come and change it. It's an origin story. And all of us love an origin story. <laughs> it's an origin story. Just like we've seen a thousand new movies about or heard a, a thousand new songs of. We can't help but hear a song that retreads some old theme of another song these days. Because our origins, it strikes something. Why is Top Gun Maverick the number one movie? It's the same thing. I loved it. It was the number one movie because it's just bringing back a movie from the 80s. That's all it's doing. And we loved it. It's an origin story, but it really isn't. My favorite uh, director, I'd say, these days is Christopher Nolan. Christopher Nolan, who made his debut really from the Batman trilogy. But he said something very interesting about that and where he came to to get to not just that trilogy, but what he believed. He said, you tell an origin story and set it in the recognizable ordinary world so that you can relate it. So you can get an ancient story to connect to people in their current time and day. And do you know what his, his uh, muse was, where he went to get this idea, was J.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Because J.R.R. Tolkien, when he wrote his books, not the movies, the books, in the 50s and 60s, he struggled with the exact same thing. He struggled with, okay, how do I make this reality relatable? And if you look at the thread and the theme that goes through both of even their modern and, and older works, it's the return of the knight, the return of the king. There's this desire, this thread. And J.R.R. Tolkien, who would have a connection to someone we all know and may have heard the name C.S. Lewis, who at the time was not a Christian at all, could have cared less about any of that, who taught of every origin story, mytho mythological 
uh, Norse mythology in Oxford himself, and yet could have cared less. And it was J.R.R. Tolkien who said, there is a thread and theme in everything you teach of the longing of eternity that you want, that every single character of this mythology is telling you that you want a king to come. There's one of ancient days. And what would bring C.S. Lewis to become a Christian was that fact. It was the fact that the Bible is the one, it is the original story. Because it's not one that's bringing out some sort of mythology. It's actually saying, this is a narrative account of a king who comes in ancient days. This is why Matthew and other books of the gospels draw out this beginning part. It is that. And the people of Israel are looking for someone to come from ancient days to bring the power that they long for. This is why it even begins. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. If you're hearing me right, you're thinking, okay, well this doesn't sound like a very powerful king yet. Israel is actually being told here they're going to be struck on the cheek. And it's not a good thing, you would think that, but for them, they would recognize to be struck on the cheek is a sign of humiliation. This is why Jesus in the New Testament picks up, he says, when you get struck on the cheek, he teaches this, you should turn the other one. And why is that so hard for us? Because it's a sign of humiliation. Saying, Israel, you will be humiliated. This is what it's gonna happen to you. You don't have enough strength. And that's why it says there'll be one who comes in strength to be that is of the Lord, the shepherd of the flock. But Assyria was this superpower. I told you I was going to tell you a little bit more about them. They weren't only unstoppable in militarily, but they were bigger, faster, stronger. And as I read historically more about the kings that stretched a little bit before Micah and after him from Assyria, their aggression when it came to anything military, was insane. They not only squashed people, but then they set up vassal kings, other rulers around to watch you. And that if you stepped out of line, you would be destroyed. I know in our time right now, we just see images of this. But in right now, what's happening in Ukraine, we're seeing what we see as a bully. Assyria was a bully of all sorts, and they love to maintain that. They love to squelch and squash those around them and keep them there. They used every moment of strength to put people in their place and keep them in that place. In fact, when I read more about it, about the religious literature of what kings were like, that they were supported in Assyria by their surrounding gods to make them more powerful to hold them up. And so here's Israel knowing that they muster the troops and yet their humiliation is coming. And they feel nothing but vulnerability in the face of power. And there is nothing more difficult, I would say, for us to experience an unstoppable power and be humiliated and vulnerable. There are so many things that we can manage and circumstances in our lives, 
But when it comes to things where we're bullied, it could be by our emotions. It could be many of us in this room deal with chronic anxiety, deep welling depression that is constantly bullying our feelings. It could be physical. It could be something of cancer. It could be something else. One reason we even have these cameras here is we have a number of people that have cancer that can't even come in this room and they have an unstoppable bully that is attacking their body. It could be desire to have children and we can't have it. It could be a a job loss and you cannot change it. It could be you've moved to Nashville or you're about to move away and you feel like I have been lonely since I landed and I feel lonely and I'm leaving. Things that put us in a vulnerable position and what we long to do, what we our stance is, is to get more powerful, is to bow up. But here's what's interesting that happens in this passage. In verse four, it says, and he shall stand and the shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in majesty of the name of God, and they shall dwell secure. How do we, how do, how do they dwell secure? You would think that by controlling our circumstances, by doing that, we would feel more secure. But actually, this king is different. This king, what if this king is actually one, instead of doing away with vulnerability, actually steps into vulnerability? Instead of saying, you need to be humiliated, he himself becomes humiliated. That turns power on its head. See, this passage actually is taken up in Matthew chapter 2 at the very beginning that we read every year during Christmas when the wise men come to visit Jesus. Even if you're here, maybe you're unfamiliar with the Bible. You've probably heard that passage read before. These wise men come to visit Jesus. Why are these kings coming to visit Jesus? And where do they visit him? We may have even read this in a, in a kid's book. Do they visit him in big palaces? Do they visit him in a great throne room? Do they visit him? I love how the Jesus Storybook Bible talks about it. Is it was he, did they find him in a great court? No. They fa- found him in a stall where animal feces were, in a trough where they eat, with two parents who were so poor they could hardly even bring a sacrifice to thank God for him. He came so vulnerable, so breakable, and yet he was so threatening when the announcement of this came. And here's what's quoted in Matthew 2. It says, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, by no means are least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. And you know when Herod, it says right after this, then Herod summoned the wise men. It was such a big deal to him and he was so threatened. Herod, Herod summoned the wise men and freaked out. And guess what Herod was? A king. Kings come to bow for him. Kings come and are threatened by him. And yet he is a baby in a stall. How do we dwell secure? Some of you have heard the name Brene Brown before. She's put this out there in in a lot of good terms. She's always mentioned that vulnerability is courage. 
She mentions that to be vulnerable, if you want to get in the, the spaces where shame and guilt lie, you have to be vulnerable. You have to let people in. But I want to take that a little further. What if the deepest amount of courage for us to understand what it means to dwell secure, and again, this is not just an emotional thing. This is a reality. When they heard this, they didn't think, oh, I feel emotionally good. They still see an enemy on a cross coming at them. But for us to dwell secure in all reality, what if it means God took the courage to step into the most vulnerable place so that we might have power? The one who holds all the power steps in to give us the power by becoming the most vulnerable. What other king does that? Who is like God? No other one that claims this, can do and step into that space. No king can do that. No one can take that on. This is why Brene Brown has talked about it, because we all know that in the depths of our heart of shame and guilt, that if we're vulnerable, we're scared anybody would meet us. This is why in confession, it's such a profound thing that even people who would say they don't know, and I've read philosophers for years say, the one thing about church that I can't make sense of is confession. Because it's the one place I have to see myself and then know that there's some great entity on the other side meeting me. And what we know from what the Bible is telling us is that God is the one that steps into that. That's what this is. Who, who can do that for us? Where do we seek something to, to solve that dwelling secure? What can fit in those spaces more than, than God himself? And we do it. We try and make the vulnerability piece be solved in some way. And yet it is God alone who says he can do it. And here's what's amazing about not only him as a God who is of ages past. He's from all eternity. He spans that time. But of a greatest of power by his vulnerability, but of peace says this in verse 5, and he shall be their peace when the Assyrian comes into our land and treads our palaces. Then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our hand and treads within our border. Notice the word treads over and over. This means the feet of the Assyrians are actually there. Again, peace when he says, and there shall be peace. Let's put ourselves in the position of what's going on in our world currently. If you live in Ukraine, peace doesn't just take on a feeling. It takes on a reality. It's comprehensive. Yes, it does impact us emotionally. But when you know people are treading in your land, buildings are brought to rubble and you're hiding out or a refugee where you never thought you would be, Peace takes up a whole new definition. And this isn't for us just to think over there. It's also to think here. How is peace a reality? And notice this. This is the biggest part. The difference is it doesn't say he shall make peace for you. He's going to make your life peace. What does it say? 
He shall be your peace. He's not like any other king who comes to say, I'm going to make everything right. You're going to live in a world, you're going to live in a a space where you're going to feel like all your money, all your job security, all your life is going to feel like it's in good order. He says, I am your peace. That's a very different thing to say. How in the world can God be our peace, not just bring peace? Because if you know you dwell with him, you can go through anything. I mean, if you have your circumstances right and he just does it, you're like, you can kind of, God, who is like God? Well, God, he's like a lot of things. He can be like my job. If I just keep putting more into it, I get more money out of it. I feel more peace from it. Everything's in order. Who's like God? Hmm. But he says he is our peace because if he dwells in that place with you, this is why at Christmas, when we read that passage from Matthew 2, we're not just talking sweet stories, we're actually reading about a God who dwells with us, the incarnation. It wasn't enough for God to say, peace be with you. had to be him taking on flesh. See, this table is a huge indicator of this piece. Because if you look at this table and think about for a moment, and we sing a song about this, and I I do this from time to time just because it, it really is interesting. We sing a song about there's a fountain filled with blood. That is a weird thing to sing. You ever just thought about that for a second? Especially if you're new here, first time into a church, or maybe coming back, and maybe you're asking that question, and you're like, That's kind of a really weird, almost gross thing to sing. Why in the world would we sing that? Why would we come to a table where, yes, we know this is wine and bread, but what it signifies is God's body and blood. It's because there has been no other king, ruler, or little g God that has given themselves to you like this. God's vulnerability is on display for you. He holds all the power and yet he gives you all this vulnerability so that you may come and leave from this table with all the power and grace and love in him. See, he is our peace. Here's what was interesting about the disciples. They started following Jesus in the New Testament and they thought, this guy's awesome. He not only feeds us, But dude, he can overthrow the Romans. That was their superpower. And in John, when he feeds 5,000 people, literally there's this narrative account, him feeding 5,000 people, and you know what they say to him when he does that? They go, we need to make this guy king. And he says, no, oh, oh, oh. My kingdom is not of this world. Because if it was just of this world, this world wouldn't be healed. It wouldn't actually get the peace that it needs. I have to do a work of being humiliated so that you might be exalted. I have to do a work of vulnerability so that you might be in relationship. That's what this table is. It's the body and blood. This is not, I want to remind you, this is not my table. And this is not even Christ Presbyterian Church Music Rose table. Amen? And his body and blood is of ancient days. 
Amen? Amen. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let's stand together.